0: Now, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 to 15. Now, 1 Timothy is our motto series for this year, and the motto series is what we study on Sundays, uh, paralleled by what we study in our small groups. That together, once a year, we focus on a key part of the Bible and learn together and encourage each other in that biblical truth. Now, today, because there is no focus this week because of events week, the normal study will happen after this service student lunch. So the passage I'm speaking on now you will get to look at again over student lunch, which will be a great opportunity if you have uh, questions uh, on it. Just uh, let me uh, encourage you in that we're now in the section of the letter concerned with leadership in the local church. Over the last six months, the elders have looked at that subject, and uh, I've explained uh, some of the decisions they have come to, I did so in the vision morning. If you weren't there, uh, I'll uh, explain them again uh, today and next week and the week after, Uh, which is a good reason to come on Thursday night if you can, just so you can hear the full explanation of all that they have uh, gone through. And uh, it is important that you recognize that I have half an hour this morning and half an hour next week. And we've spent a number of months going through this, particularly looking at the longer-term consequences in terms of allowing us to do many good things that perhaps we have been constrained from doing in the future. I can't unpack that in half an hour. The subject of men and women and leadership will raise for you many questions. And many of the questions that it will raise is how you relate to other churches or Christians who have a different understanding of these issues. And we're absolutely aware of that. And what we'll try and do is to help us think that through is give you some written material that will try to give good, strong biblical answers to these kind of questions that you will have. I think all I would say in that is you can't ever have the confidence humanly that you will have the answer to every question that people ask. We must have confidence fundamentally in God's word and in the gospel and trust that what appears to be dissonant culturally is only perhaps because of the particular moment we live in in history and trust that it's God's word and will prove to be transformative and powerful and distinctive. But if you have questions, then so does your minister, and so do the elders. And we've thought them through, so please uh, speak to us, talk to us, talk to your leaders, that together we might grow together as a church. Now, Cheeks reminded us why Paul wrote this letter. They are uh, key uh, verses So Paul says to Timothy, who's the leader of the church in Ephesus, I hope to come to you soon, but I haven't. So I'm writing down what I would have said. That's what he's saying. So that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And these are very striking verses. So Chalmers Church, as just one example of a local church in the city, is the household of God, is the church of the living God, whose function or job or calling by God is to be in this community and this city, along with other local churches, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. In other words, the local church, a church like Chalmers, is to shore up, what the bible says is truth the church is not shaped by truth which is true as much as it is the means of holding on to the truth in our society and in our culture now let's read 1 timothy chapter 2 verse 8 to 15 And the section from chapter 2, verse 8, through to chapter 3, verse 15, is concerned with leadership in a local church. So how should we function in terms of leadership in a church like Chalmers? Paul writes, chapter 2, verse 8, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. For Adam was formed first, and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now let me acknowledge two things as we read these verses. They do sound out of step with our culture. Well, they are out of step with our culture. One answer from Christians might be, so what? So what that there are things in God's word that clash with the culture? It has always been thus. Now, I think that is a, a fair question, so what? But as a Christian church, desiring to submit to God's word, I think the bigger task we have today is to be careful and clear as to exactly what these verses are saying and not saying, lest we misunderstand them. Now, I warrant that not many of us have studied them. I warrant that not many of us have studied in depth the key New Testament letter on how we should structure ourselves as a church because of passages like this. And I regret that it's taken me 10 years, 10 years with so much strategy and planning about how to structure the church that we haven't turned to the New Testament letter about how you should structure the church. I mean, that sounds obvious now when you say it. So here we are, and I'm glad that we have found our way to this uh, best book on how to be church. The second thing as we read it and react to it is that some of us as Christians will find it harder than others to understand or accept what God's word says here. So, for example, that you've never heard this stuff in the Bible taught and it's all over the New Testament. Or you have, you're thinking now, how on earth am I going to explain this to my friends or family or my Christian mates in the city? How, what am I going to say? They're going to think, That's a fair reaction. We spent six months as elders thinking through this whole thing that we might come confidently to do what the Word of God says, and I've only got half an hour. My question to them, though, was this, and my question to myself is this, and my question to you is this. So my question to myself is what I am teaching, and I have the... The baton to do much of the Sunday teaching along with Rog and Sam. The question to myself is, what I am teaching, what the Bible says. The question to the elders over these months is, what I am teaching, what the Bible says. The question from me to you is, is this what the Bible says? Now you need to distinguish, I need to distinguish between what I think it says and what I think I'd like it to say and what it does say because it's God's word and it's the pillar and buttress of the truth and this church is not led by me nor the elders it's led by Jesus Christ who is not with us physically but with us in the person of his spirit and inspires his word, the apostles' word this church is ruled by Christ and his word and what the church in the western world must do is submit to the rule of Christ and his word Otherwise, we'll, we'll just run with the spirit of the age. We, we can't do anything but. And like never before in the church, in these islands at least, the church needs the Bible to help it know what to do. Now, We could easily get on to verses 11 to 15, and we will and spend much of our time there, but there's some great practical stuff in verses 8, 9, and 10. So the first heading I've got is, Men, stop arguing amongst yourselves and get on with praying. Um, That sounds very practical and real, and it is. I desire that in every place, verse 8, the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Paul has been concerned, chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, to encourage the church family to pray for all kinds of people to be saved. And here in verse 8, he specifically encourages the men to pray, presumably because they are not. I mean, there's a great practical reality about how real the Bible is and its inspiration. How many of us as men, and there were a lot more chats about this after service one, how many of us as men in our homes lead family devotions? How many of us lead times of prayer or take the lead? Now, it seems that the men in church life in Ephesus were arguing amongst themselves rather than praying. I think that's what Paul means. You know, you shouldn't be lifting up hands in anger, but you should be lifting up holy hands in prayer. Now, they maybe just weren't praying at all. Or maybe they were pitching up to the church prayer meeting and then on the street afterwards talking behind each other's backs, all that kind of stuff. And in either way, Paul rebukes them, the men. It's just worth saying that all of this stuff about how we should live as Christians, the New Testament articulates, it says we need to be distinctive in all areas of life, but the two contexts that it really focuses on all the time are the household, that's our homes, marriages, families, and the household of God that is the local church. These are the places where uh, these areas of distinctiveness should be seen most of all. Why is that? Because a Christian family in your home and a Christian church, the household of God, are the only places on this earth where you're going to get closer than anywhere else to what eternity is like. And it's a long way short of that. They're the only places, the household in the family, in a household of God, where God's truth will be heard and seen. And if they're not going to hold up God's truth in our culture, nobody else is. Now, I think the practical application here is men man up and pray. (laughs) I wonder if it's just as straight and as simple as that. Me as a husband and as a dad... Stop relying on Sally endlessly to prod me. Dad, Dad, will you read the Bible and pray with the children? Men in the church, pray. Rogers put this question into the small group leaders. No, it's not his question. It's the question out of this passage. What would Chalmers look like if men took on corporate prayer life really seriously? I mean, what would it look like if, if in the church, Across the UK, if men really led and if men really stood to the plate. I think one of the reasons that the church has become so confused on men, women, and roles is because the men have abdicated responsibility to be men, to lead. It's time for men to pray. Now, the text is not saying that women shouldn't pray. Of course, it's not saying that. It doesn't say that. It's saying. Well, it's implying that women do and thank the Lord for that then our prayer meetings would collapse and let me just say that women will continue to lead up here and continue to pray up here as they have always done the challenge here is to men get on and pray what would happen if everybody in the church prayed, maybe we'd plant two churches I said that in service one and then immediately regretted it and thought that one is enough but I think it can be a simple ratchet like that Think of the more dependent we are on God, the more God will remind us that to be dependent on a sovereign, powerful God is a good and a powerful thing. The less we are dependent on him, the more we are dependent on ourselves. The more we take the Bible and turn it into what the culture accepts, the less power there will be in the end. There has to be. God is gracious, but he's not flexible with his truth. See, you would riot if I told you the gospel was not Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, but something else. And the rest of it is all part of that package. Now, verses 9 and 10, apparently are two of the most controversial verses in the New Testament. I don't think they are. I think they're really sane and sensible. I think they're just really sensible. Verses 9 and 10, women don't dress seductively or ostentatiously in the church, but with good works likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control not with braided hair with gold apparels or costly attire but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works don't dress seductively i mean just think of it think of uh, a woman standing up here singing as many do to help us dressing in a seductive way that's not good for the men in the church it's just not it's not good for the women in the church that's what he's saying And he's also saying, don't dress ostentatiously, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. Now, quite what that meant in the culture braided hair, was it a hairstyle bedecked with jewellery, it may have been, or expensive clothes worn in order to impress and to be noticed? That's what he's saying. Look, don't come to church to dress in order to be noticed for how much money you've got. That's all it's saying. The positive, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. That's kind of heard to be a kind of pejorative verse. What it's saying is that what is most attractive, and it's true of men and true of women, is, is godliness. What attracted me to Sally, and I've said this before and written it down in a book, so it must be true, was our godliness and her personality and looks and all that. But godliness is a very attractive thing. Good works, it's not a kind of deity thing. Good works are the expression of godliness. And there's a feminine expression of godliness and a male expression of godliness. And underlying all of this, the Bible's teaching is is, is God made us men and women. And the richness of that. Now this verse is on women not dressing seductively or ostentatiously but with good works are liberating. You don't have to worry about what you come to church wearing. But what it's not saying is this. It's not saying that Christian women are to be dowdy or that Christian women in their homes on a Sunday morning spend hours in front of the mirror working out what the appropriate respectable apparel is for the church. It's not saying that at all. It's just making common sense. Let me just be quite clear as well. It's not saying that braided hair, gold or pearls are a problem and that Christians shouldn't have them. And this is important. It's the principle behind the the cultural expression of the... This is a cultural expression of a principle in Ephesus. You know, braided hair, then gold or pearls. The principle is uh, biblical womanhood not dressing in a way that is ostentatious or off-putting to others, serving others, blessing others. And the cultural expressions of that may change, but the principle underlying is, is a timeless one. Now, let's turn to verses 11 to 15. And taking the verses together as a group, Paul is teaching this. Men, not women, should exercise authority in the church and teach in a mixed church gathering. Let me read the verses again. Do follow if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, the easiest way for us to understand what Paul is saying here is to walk through these verses carefully, looking first at who should exercise authority in the church and second, the link between authority and teaching. Does that make sense? So, we're going to walk through them And answer this question, who should exercise authority in a local church? And then, what's the link between authority and teaching in that church? So, who should exercise authority in a local church? And remember, the context here is the household of God. Paul is not saying to you, when you go to work tomorrow and your boss is a female, and you're a man, that you shouldn't respect her authority. He's not saying that. It's nothing to do with that. It's the household of God. It's the home and the household of God. Wonderfully illustrated on the crown, which you know I'm a fan of, the queen insisted on her wedding day to promise to obey her husband. And the queen insisted on her coronation day that Philip should promise to obey her as sovereign. One's marriage, the household. The other one is Work. And that balance is exactly right. It's what happens in here. And what happens in here, in a church, is different from what happens out there, not because we want to clash with a culture, because what happens in here is what God created humanity to be, what God has redeemed humanity to be, and what one day we will perfectly be. So it's good to be in here. And we must hold on to that. It's good, it's light, salt, Transforming. It's rich. So, who should exercise authority in the church? Verse 12 I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man in the household of God. I do not permit a woman to exercise authority over a man. And so, in the church, in a local church, authority leadership should be exercised by men. That's what the Bible says. And that is consistent across the whole Bible. And one of the uh, bits on the the literature we'll give you is to show you that it's consistent. I can't do that now. I don't have time to do that. Now, the big question for us to consider is this. Is this a principle that in a local church authority should be exercised by men? Is it a principle that applies today Or is Paul writing into a particular cultural context 1st century Ephesus and what he says is no longer applicable today? And that's a question of interpretation and of application. Now somebody might say to you, you interpret the Bible this way, I interpret it differently. You're not... I don't want you to be interested in my interpretation. I want us all to be as a church, preachers included, interested in how the Bible interprets itself. When you have a question like this, is he speaking about a timeless principle or is he speaking about a cultural issue at a particular point in time? I want the Bible to help me answer that question. I mean, I wouldn't trust me if I were you. I don't want to turn to a tome on the shelf that says, This is the latest scholarly opinion on how you answer that question. I want the Bible to help me. And does the Bible answer the question here? Well, look what it says. I do not permit a woman to exercise authority over a man. That's verse 12, verse 13. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. Adam was formed first and then Eve. And what Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, you've got my letter in this hand. Pick up Genesis 1 and 2. My description of creation in your other hand And remember that Adam was formed first and then Eve, and that's a summary statement for Genesis 1 and 2. In other words, in the church, a local church, authority, leadership should be exercised by men because that's the principle, that's the pattern God established in creation. It's a timeless principle, as applicable today in the 21st century in a church like Chalmers, as it was in the first century in a church like Ephesus. Now, I think that's the only way you can interpret this. The only only thing you can do otherwise is get into the whole realm of saying, well, God now speaks to us in new ways. Or God has his word, but now there's something else, and God speaks to us in ways that lead us on from his word for our culture. Now, that sounds plausible, but, you know, it's a bottomless pit, where do you go with that? It leads you to think, well, is God saying stuff today that contradicts his word? Not ever if he makes the point in his word that this is a creational principle. And he nails this in in, in, Ephesians, in 1 Timothy. He goes back to Genesis. Now, in the Bible study notes that Roger's done, and they're really great and helpful, and I know how much you're benefiting from them. Rog will take you this week in your small group into Genesis 1 and 2 and then into Genesis 3 so that you're going to see where this all comes from in Genesis. I don't have time to do that. Let me just give you the case from Genesis 1 and 2. This is what Paul is saying. This is a timeless principle because of these things. Go back to Genesis 1 and 2 and you will read of two things. Number one, equality. Equality. Equality between men and women in creation. Men and women share equally the image of God. That is affirmed right through the Bible. In redemption, men and women share all the benefits of salvation equally. Here's a great New Testament verse There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's a powerful verse. Equality in creation, equality in redemption the Lord Jesus could not have gone more out of his way in what was a patriarchal, chauvinistic, male-dominated world that is the first century, to choose again and again model disciples who were women. The most important event in all of human history was witnessed by women who were not credible witnesses in the time. Every person I look at this morning, male or female, Jew or Greek, slave or free, Is equal, fully equal, as a child of God, as a co heir of the glorious inheritance of the new creation. Everybody in Chammers is equal. Now, the second principle in Genesis 1 and 2 is complementarity. That's a big word, and it's hard to find a better word. Biblical complementarity. What what that means, let's just cut to the chase. It means that men and women are different and these differences are complementary to one another. That's what it means. And that complementary, the difference is seen physically and emotionally and in a marriage, it's seen powerfully when a man and a woman come together and, and they are complementary. But also embraced within complementarity are the different roles for men and women. To men is given the responsibility to lead, and to women, uh, uh, God has given them uh, the responsibility to submit to that uh, male uh, leadership. And that's what complementarity is. So in a marriage or in a home, when the man takes the lead and the woman submits to that male leadership, there is complementarity. And in the church, when men take the lead... When men take their responsibility and women submit to that leadership, there is complementarity. It works. It's unity. It's God's pattern for the household and the household of God. It's God's church. Of course, this is so dissonant with our culture. All you need to do is travel with me in time 100 years ago and it wasn't this issue. Or get on a plane and go to the other side of the world and it's not this issue. The Bible transcends culture. And it tells you when it does, like here, when it takes you to Genesis. It's a principle that's timeless. And again, the complementarity of men and women is affirmed right through the Bible. So we've all seen in our culture how uh, the household marriage is affirmed and defended right through the New Testament. And so also is complementarity—the different roles of men and women. Here's a very powerful New Testament verse. Um, I'd love to, to tackle this just as a separate talk. Um, One Corinthians eleven three. But I want you to understand, Paul says, that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a woman is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Isn't that striking? How could I be absolutely sure that complementarity with respect to the difference in terms of roles with men to lead and women to submit to that lead is a timeless principle. I would look for the Bible to take me to Genesis. I would look for the New Testament to affirm that principle as it does. But it goes further than that. The Bible takes us beyond creation into the very heart of the Godhead to see there is both equality and complementarity in the Godhead. Father, Son, and Spirit. So are the Father, Son, and Spirit equal? Of course they are. Are the Father, Son, and Spirit different? Different in the sense that one is the Father, one is the Son, and one is the Spirit, yes. But is this other aspect of difference that is headship and submission in the Godhead? According to God, it is. Listen again. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is a husband, and the head of Christ is God. The son submits to God the Father and is fully equal with him. Now, I find that very powerful and very persuasive, and I find it very moving and good and humbling. Now, turning back to the text of 1 Timothy, if verse 12 is saying that men are to exercise authority in the local church, and if verse 13 is saying that this is a creation principle that always applies and that it is traced all through the New Testament, then what is Paul saying in verse 14? And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. What Paul is saying in verse 14, all of this was messed up by the fall, by the rebellion of humanity. That's what he's saying in verse 14. And again, in the Bible studies, they will take you to the text of Genesis 3. Now his point in verse 14, and this is where we need to be clear what it's not saying. It's one of these verses that if we just listen to it, it just sounds... Paul is not saying he couldn't be saying because he'd be contradicting himself. And remember, it's Jesus through his apostle who is speaking. He's not saying that women are more gullible, devious, or sinful. You don't find Jesus saying that, do we? He's not saying that. Or that women are responsible for the fall. Rather, what he's doing in verse 14. There's one issue I have with the apostle. I wish he just kind of stretched it out a bit more. He's very succinct very succinct in in verse 13 that takes you to genesis 1 and 2 and he's very succinct in verse 14 which takes you to genesis 3 which is why roger's unpacked it a bit taking us to the text of genesis 1 2 and 3 what verse 14 is saying is that god's created order is turned on his head in the fall so what's god's created order that god created uh, humanity men and women God is over them, exercising authority over humanity, men and women, that men were to exercise authority over women, and humanity, men and women, were to exercise authority over the animals. And in the fall and rebellion, everything is reversed. The serpent, the animal, deceived the woman, Eve, who deceived the man, Adam, and therefore Adam and Eve together, man and woman, reject God's rule. Everything is turned on its head. And is that not an apt description of fallen humanity? Everything is distorted. And we're seeing that in our culture more and more. The further retreat from order to disorder with everything turned on its head. Even to the extent now that God did not create men and women. They're fundamental things. Now, just to show you from the Bible, which interprets itself, that Paul does not mean, God's apostle, does not mean that women are more gullible, devious, or sinful. He himself makes that clear in Romans 5 and 12. He puts the blame firmly at man's door for their lack of responsibility to lead. It is Adam who is culpable in Romans 5. And Genesis three twenty-two to 24, it is Adam God holds responsible in the garden for his failure to lead. And then finally, in the detail, verse 15, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, this is not a promise that women will be kept safe in childbearing. It could well be a reference to the woman's seed, Genesis 3.15, ultimately being the Lord Jesus, who is the Savior, and therefore the unique and privileged role women have in the salvation plan of God And that's plausible because Paul certainly has Genesis in mind, as we've seen. More likely, I think, what Paul means here is simply that as God saves us, he assigns men and women different paths in life. Now, he's not saying that to be fulfilled as a Christian woman, you must have children. He's not saying that. And I could show you that he's not saying that by taking you all over his writing. Nor is he saying that women shouldn't work and should be at home with their children. He's not saying that. What he is saying is that in the church, in the household of God, we should not devalue the role of motherhood in any way more than we should devalue the role of fatherhood. If that's God's path for you, walk in it. What strikes me? more in the church is not when you say to somebody you know the classic question you ask what do you do? when I answer that question silence always ensues (laughs) what do you do? if you ask a woman that question she'll say that she works in this or that And you know the women who are anxious in the church in their response well I'm I stay at home with the kids as if that's something that's lesser Lots of women work and are wonderful mums. Lots of women take time out and work in different times. People should not be embarrassed by that calling in life. It's a rich and a wonderful one. Sally worked as a banker for years when we had children. So in some people's eyes, she got it wrong. Now that I'm working in the church, we wouldn't survive if she was working as a banker I mean, all this is saying is, is, is don't devalue what God has given women that he hasn't given men. The wonderful privilege of childbearing and motherhood. And then he's saying elsewhere, don't devalue the wonderful privileges God has given to men to be dads. And husbands who will lay down their lives for their wives. Now, let me summarize. We've been looking at who should exercise authority in the local church. In a place like Chalmers. In a local church, authority leadership should be exercised by men. That's what the word of God says. His church, his household, the pillar and buttress of his truth. And it is for this reason that the elders in Chalmers, as those who exercise authority in the local church, have made the decision that elders should be men. They came to that decision as a group. That group had men and women in it. Let me encourage you, and it's not for me to unload the discussions in that room, but it was remarkable to listen to these godly women, encourage the men to step up, to their task and the women to step back acknowledging what the Word of God says. And I want to commend them publicly for the extraordinary commitment not to do what their minister says or what the majority said but to do what the Bible says. It's such a powerful thing. And I want to promise you as a church that these decisions will prove to be significant for us as a church as God will show us in innumerable ways that will liberate more and more people to serve in giftedness within the church. Why? Because we've done what God's word says. Now, in the time we have left, and uh, you're doing brilliantly to, to keep up with this, I want us now to just draw the link, and much more on this next week and the week after, the link between authority and teaching. What's the link between those who exercise authority in a local church and Bible teaching? What's the link between those who exercise authority and those who teach the Bible? Read with me verses 11 and 12 again. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Men, not women, should exercise authority in the church. And men, not women, should teach in a mixed church Gathering, Let me immediately anticipate a question some of you guys, the students will ask in student lunch. What about at CU meetings when women teach? That's not the church. It's not the household of God. It's not, it's different. And just tuck that away and if you want to follow up on that, you can. Within the household of God, men, not women, should teach when the church is gathered together. Why? Because God's word says it, that's important. But why does God's word say it? The reason is, and there's a rich theology across the New Testament to say this, that Jesus Christ leads the church. Jesus Christ leads a church like Chalmers through the word he inspired his apostles to write, the scriptures of the New Testament and the Old Testament they affirm. Jesus Christ leads the church Through His Word, and therefore the supreme authoritative activity in the life of a local church is when the church is gathered together under the teaching of the Word that is the rule of the church. That makes sense. Therefore, as we'll see next week, elders in the church should not just be men, but should be godly men and. Men who are gifted teachers of God's word. And that's something that the elders who are men need to search their hearts on. It doesn't mean to say pulpit preaching. It means you can't be an elder unless you can sit down and explain to somebody the gospel or teach someone or lead a Bible study or refute error. Because that's how you lead in a church. It makes sense, as we'll see next week, that if the Lord Jesus, the chief shepherd, leads his church through his inspired word, then those in earthly leadership, the elders, as under shepherds, should lead by teaching his word. So men, not women, should exercise authority in the church, and men, not women, should teach in a mixed church gathering. Now, what is a mixed church gathering? Well, what we are doing now, gathered together as a church family in Sunday services. And that's the pattern here and always has been. In terms of other contexts in church life and who should be teaching, that is something the elders will give further thought to over the coming months. The key thing for now is to get the principle clear. I would be, I mean, I think hardly anything will change in the life of the church. I mean, what we're doing is effectively this. I think what will change is that we'll see many more men and women who have the gift to teach teaching in a lot more places in the church. I think what will change is that we will have a rich and full women's ministry in the church. I think what would not surprise me is that we appoint a woman to the staff of the church over time. Because suddenly the the guard is lifted and we can talk and wrestle through these things. I think we'll turn again and again to Titus and we'll have older women teaching younger women across the church and we'll see younger women grow and then the men will say, shouldn't we be doing that too? And the men will man up and older men will teach younger men all over the church. They'll be rich in complementarity and unity. The one thing I can say to you as a church particularly those of you who are older and have been here for more than 10 minutes. None of you are allowed to leave this year. I can't stand another year of people moving away. Okay, you've got to stay. You know as a church that when you do what God's word says, the church doesn't fall apart. You know that through and through. You'll never forget it. Now, what is God's Word not saying here? It is not saying that women should not have a teaching role in the life of a church, nor is it saying that men who are gifted to teach who are not elders should not have a teaching role in the life of a church. It's not saying that. It's saying that women who have the gift to teach, as many do in this church, are not. it's not saying they're not to use these gifts. A gift from God is to be used, but in ways and contexts that are appropriate and do not undermine the God-given responsibility of men to lead. So, for example... Paul's instruction to Titus to the older women to teach what is good and to train the young women Eunice and Lois are commended for teaching Timothy their son and grandson in Acts Priscilla stood at Aquila's side correcting Apollos like two small group leaders working together Paul endorses women praying and prophesying in the church. Prophesying, what does that mean? It's it's intelligible biblical insights. Think of a small group when men and women share intelligible biblical insights. Would it be, uh, is it wrong for women to do that? No, Paul says it's not, it's right, it's good. Women praying in church, prayer meetings, up here on a Sunday, reading the Bible. Yes, but that's not the authoritative teaching ministry of the church, which should be in the hands of men because to men is given the authoritative leadership in the church. Now, uh, let me wrap up. Men, stop arguing amongst yourselves and get on praying. Women don't dress seductively or ostentatiously, but with good works. Men, not women, should exercise authority in the church and teach in a mixed church gathering. Now, as I said at the beginning, the elders have spent a number of months working carefully through 1 Timothy chapters 2 and 3, looking at leadership and authoritative teaching in the church. My question to them through that process was Is what I'm teaching on church leadership what the Bible says? And that is how we came to a mind as elders. Because we agreed this is what the Bible says. And my question to you is the same. And the question of your small group leaders to you is the same. Is this what the Bible says? And that is such a fundamental question. And it's such a vital question to the church in the Western world today. Um, It's why you have to have your Bibles with you on a Sunday. One of the small group leaders off the back of the study of chapter 1 have decided that they are all going to read the Bible passage before they come on a Sunday to make sure that the preacher's speaking from the Bible. It's so important you do that. And my job, along with the rest of the elders, is to lead by teaching the Bible God's word, that together we might submit to its authority. You must not do anything because we say you should do it. But if we show you that this is what the Bible says... That's good leadership. And that's what the Bible asks a church to submit to. And remember who we are as a church. We are the household of God. We are the church of the living God. And it's down to us to buttress truth in our culture for the generation that follows us and the generation that follows them. And unless we do that as a church across this country... The Holy Spirit that we long for to come in reviving power just doesn't have stuff to work with and it will all fall apart. Let's trust God together. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word. It is difficult sometimes and we will have many questions but we are a church family where there is rich trust with each other. And so we pray that there would be fertile and useful conversations and you would lead us, Lord, to understand how important it is that we wrestle and live out in our homes and live out in our churches what you say we should do and how you say we should live. And Lord, will you prove to us in wonderful ways because we are weak and doubting sinners that to do what is right is good and powerful and purposeful. And will you make us love one another? We pray that the men in the church here will live their lives as the Bible encourages men to do, but to do so in a loving, servant hearted way with Christ as the model who laid down his life for his bride. May the men here be shot through with servant heartedness. And offer the women in the church here, we thank you for their godly 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 insights and gifts expressed in so many ways and we pray lord that the women of the church will submit to the leadership of the men and that you will show them and us a rich and a fulfilled range of bible teaching and other gifts for women to exercise that together we will see once again your promises proved to be wonderfully true so raise up lord across our church family Gifted people, gifted people to flourish and to lead in ways that are appropriate to the God-given structure for complementarity and unity and stability in a local church. And Lord, help us, help the church in this part of the world to hold on to that calling to be a pillar and to be a buttress of the truth. In Jesus' name.